Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 29, all the way to the end of Hebrews 12. Our context is this, in the first 13 verses of Hebrews 12, the author has exhorted the Hebrew Christians to not grow weary, to not grow weary running the race, to be disciplined when you're boxing in the fight of life or the race of life, have your knees strengthened when you're running, have your arms your hands strengthened when you grow weary. And so it was a lot of practical exhortations. Why? Because the Hebrew Christians were being persecuted so badly in the persecution in the 60s AD, persecuted by the old Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the non-believing Jews. So we come here to chapter 12, verses 14 through 29, and we see the author talking about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's going to contrast the old testament jewish kingdom of the sadducees and the pharisees which is about to be destroyed by the romans in ad 70 after before one generation passes away from when jesus predicted it on the olivet discourse that kingdom was going to be shaken but contrasted with the kingdom of god the dominion of christ which will last forever and ever that's a kingdom that cannot be shaken so as i said we'll call this section of scripture a kingdom that cannot be shaken the church of jesus christ we start in verse 14 hebrews 12 the author says this, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. The NIV says, For pursue, make every effort. Make every effort to have peace with everyone. Peace only comes with great effort. It just doesn't happen. After all, it takes two to fight. If the other person doesn't want to fight and you do, well, then you're not making every effort to pursue peace, are you? All of us have so much sin to deal with. Fighting is likely. Now, when it says, Make every effort, to have peace with everyone, that does not mean peace at any price. Sometimes confrontation is necessary. I mean, good heavens, look at in the New Testament, how much confrontation did Paul and Peter have to go through? Paul had confrontation with his own fellow missionary workers, namely Barnabas and John Mark. Here's a verse in Deuteronomy that shows we cannot pursue peace at any price. Deuteronomy 23, 6, never seek their peace or prosperity as long as you live, referring to the enemies of God. Sometimes the enemies of God have got to be stood up to, and there's not going to be peace then. There's going to be a war. Here is a relevant scripture, Romans 12:18. if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. So Paul right there admits the possibility that sometimes it is not possible to live at peace with people. Sometimes. But most of the time it is, so make an effort to do so. Here's some other scriptures talking about the virtues of peace. Matthew 5, 9, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Malachi 2, 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and fairness, and turned many from sin. But of course, here the author of the book of Hebrews is not talking about a time when you have to fight to defend the truth of the gospel. He's not talking about that. But of course, what the author is talking about here is not that situation. He's talking about just getting along with your Christian brothers and sisters. Just you know, there's, there's a lot of wars that don't need to be fight. They're stupid wars. I mean, I just heard of a situation in a church where people were bellyaching because somebody had mentioned as an example of that which we ought not to be concerned about, the length of people's hair. And then pretty soon they were arguing about the length of people's hair. Stupid things. That's the stuff we shouldn't argue about. We should pursue peace in those kind of non-essential things that don't really matter. We're supposed to pursue holiness, the author says in verse 14. Holiness, of course, is separation from the world and its profanities and consecration or dedication to God. Holiness means sainthood. A saint is a holy one. A sanctuary is a holy place. 
pursue that. Here are some scriptures showing how important holiness is to the Christian, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The word holy is mentioned in one verse, one, two, three, four times. And why are we to be holy? Because we are supposed to be like God. And he is holy. We're supposed to reflect his image. First John 3, 2-3, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So when we see Jesus, we won't be afraid of him, because we'll be like him. We will, we will, we will reflect his nature, and we will be holy. Leviticus 11 45, for I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be holy because I am holy. That's the verse that Peter quoted in verse 1 Peter 1, verse 16. So, we're supposed to imitate God in his holiness, as the scripture clearly says. And notice that in Hebrews 12, 14, the author is saying, make every effort to be holy. Pursue holiness in the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Pursue it. Work at it. Of course, you don't work at it without Jesus doing it because you can't do it on your own, of course. That's a total waste of your time. And it's talking about make it your goal to have Jesus to transform your nature from image to image, from glory to glory to glory unto the image of Christ. Without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. And this is an interesting scripture because it proves that sanctification begins at the point of salvation. We usually think of sanctification as progressive sanctification. We get justified, point in time, declaration of our righteousness because of the blood of Jesus before God's, in God's tribunal, if you will. And then sanctification begins from then on. But no, sanctification begins right at the point you get saved. Think about that thief on the cross. It was impossible for him to see the Lord without holiness, this verse in Hebrews says, verse 14, chapter 12, without holiness, the thief on the cross could not have seen God. Well, how much time did he have to progress in his sanctification? Not much. So we will assume that right at the point of salvation, your holiness begins. There's a, there's a theological term for that. I forgot what it is. I think it's positional, declarative sanctification, maybe. I forgot. doesn't matter. point is, as soon as we get saved, we're sanctified. We're set apart to God and apart from this world and we just need to grow in that as we get older and older. Hebrews 12:15. make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. Falling short means to fail to lay your hands on it. How do you fall short of the grace of God? By backsliding, apostatizing, and going back to Judaism. Adam Clark quotes Chrysostom. This way, quote, the image is taken from a company of travelers, one of whom lags behind and so never reaches the end of the long, laborious journey. He gets lost on the way. So don't do that. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. A root, of course, is hidden and deep in the soil. Bitterness can be like that on the surface. Somebody can be just as pleasant and happy as they can be, but deep down they're harboring all this bitterness. Now, the verse that is probably being quoted by the author of Hebrews here is Deuteronomy 29:18. Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now there, Deuteronomy 29, the root is the root of apostasy, which would bear bitter fruit. 
Steve Ackerson makes the point that the author of Hebrews may have had both apostasy and bitterness in mind. This fits the context of the verse because we know, of course, the whole book is talking about the danger of apostatizing. And the idea is that when people apostatize, that will defile many in the church when they see it. They will become bitter. So that would be a root of apostasy which causes bitterness springs up. Just like cowardice in an army will spread through the army and ruin it, so bitterness will ruin the church. It's not just individual. We always take this verse in our individualistic culture as being as applying personally. I shouldn't be bitter in my heart. But it's not just, I mean, look, it says make sure, the author is talking to the whole church, make sure that no root of bitterness springs up somewhere. In other words, it's not just an individual matter, it's a church matter. Don't let bitterness start spreading through your church or you will be ruined your church will be ruined. And it would be logical that bitterness would spring up because a lot of the Christians might have grown weary. They might have become bitter because of the persecution that was occurring to them. Remember, the book of author, the author of the book of Hebrews is assuming in these several verses here that he's assuming a church context where everyone knew each other. So again, it's corporate, not individual. We go to verse 16, Hebrews 12, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. Again, look out for what's going in your church. We don't want any immorality in your church. You need to exercise church discipline if there is. Or irreverent person, somebody starts trashing God, and you've got to get rid of them. You've got to disassociate yourself from such a person. Now, immoral... What does that mean? Well, usually you see immoral, it means sexual immorality. That's a common translation for the Greek word that means sexual immorality. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that's what is probably being referred to here. Now, some people say it's Esau was never, since Esau was never accused of being sexually immoral, not in the scriptures, that the immorality that's being referred to here is the fact that he sold his birthright, which he shouldn't have done. The promises to Abraham, land, offspring, and blessing. Esau says, I don't care. Give me some pottage. Give me some food. The problem with that, that's not the type of immorality that's being talked about. I don't think the, the NIV translates the word immoral as sexually immoral. I looked up the word. The Greek word is pornos from which we get the word pornography. The Thayer's definition of pornos is a man who prostitutes his body to another's lust for hire, a male prostitute, or a man who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse, a fornicator. And the King James translates the word there as a fornicator. So I think the preponderance of the evidence says that this immorality that's being talked about here is sexual immorality. Now the next problem is, if it is, when was Esau ever sexually immoral? Well, it doesn't say so in the... Old Testament, we have a problem here. Why would the author of the book of Hebrews in the middle of the letter concerning persecution suddenly exhort against sexual immorality? It doesn't seem like it fits the context. Well, the Bible never says Esau was immoral, but the Jews somehow deduced that he was immoral. So apparently the author of the book of Hebrews is referring to the common Jewish conception that Esau was sexually immoral. I don't know where they got that from, but that's what they said. But at any rate, that's really a minor point. The major point is you don't want to tolerate certain things in your church, and sexual immorality is one of the common things that cannot be tolerated. Now, Esau is also called an irreverent person. The Greek word there is uh, belos. I got the accent on the wrong syllable. It's bebelos, bebelos. That carries the idea of profane or worldly, a worldly person or a profane person like Esau. Thayer's definition has it as 
if it's a place accessible or lawful to be trodden, you know, like the common dirt, the miry clay, a profane person. Well, if it's a place, a profane place, it's an unhallowed place, an unholy place, a common place, a public place. But if it's, an, if it's a profane man, it's just an ungodly man. So, And Esau was ungodly. He was irreverent. He was profane. He didn't care about the promises of God. He only cared about his material satisfaction, his sensual satisfaction. He sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. That's quite an exchange. We read about that story in Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking his stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. Esau means red, by the way, and Edom means red. Let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom, because Edom means red. Jacob replied first, I'm not sure Esau means red, but Edom means red. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? He must have been awful hungry to be about to die. You know, like we say, I'm dying of hunger, but we don't really mean it. I wonder if Esau really meant that he got himself so hungry he was about to shuffle off his mortal coil. I don't think so. I just think he was hungry. He wanted to eat. Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Yeah, for one lousy meal he gave up land, offspring, and blessings. A blessing to the, all the nations of the world. And even in the physical, Abraham got the whole, or his descendants of Abraham, like Solomon, David, got the whole land of Israel. And then, of course, after that, all the descendants of Abraham, all the believers in the kingdom of God spread all over the earth. And that's what Esau gave up for one lousy meal. He valued food in his stomach more than God's inheritance. That reminds us of Philippians 3:18 through 19. For I've often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. And that describes Esau perfectly. His God was his stomach. We go now to verse 17, Hebrews 12. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Yeah, he, after he got himself full, he says, ooh, I gave up all that, all that, all those sheep, all those goats that my father Isaac has. Gee, I'd like to get it back. But he had no opportunity for repentance. Now, there's some options there. The reason he had no opportunity for repentance to get his blessing back is because he had already, because Isaac had already switched the blessed blessing to Jacob. And remember, back then this was not just a a minor thing. This was a, a legal formalities that you went through. You just didn't say, oh, "Okay, I changed my mind. I'm going to switch my blessing back to Esau from Jacob." No, once it's done, it's done. I mean, it's legal, set. You don't change it. It's too late. No opportunity now to change your mind. Repentance means to change your mind. Now, the commentator Kistemacher says this, the reason there was no opportunity for repentance is because Esau's heart was hard and he went to hell. Well, now, how does Kistemacher know that? How does Kistemacher know that Esau didn't later repent? I don't know how he knows that. He must be quasi-omniscient. I think what the word means is just there was no legal opportunity for Esau to change his mind, even though he sought for it with tears. Now, Steve Ackerson suggests that the reason that this verse is put in here is perhaps the author is telling the readers that if they apostatize and go back to Judaism, there's no chance for coming back. And I don't believe that because why cannot they come back? I mean, people murder people. Jesus forgives that. I mean, look at Paul going around murdering people. What's worse, doing that or the Jews going to the local synagogue and saying, I don't believe in Jesus anymore? I mean, <laughs> they're both pretty serious. 
And I can't believe that Jesus can't forgive apostasy. So I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Remember that verse, in, that classic verse in Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. Once you backslide, once you apostatize, you're not going to come back. Well, that has a world of troubles. I've already talked about that in Hebrews 6, and I believe that Sproul is right that this, that doesn't make any sense. Is saying, look, you're trying to get these legalistic Christians who are going back under the law and going back to Judaism, you're trying to get them to repent again. They already saved. They already repented, so it's impossible to renew them to repentance since they're already saved. You can't do that. You can't save somebody who's already been saved. I think Sproul's view makes a lot of sense for that passage in Hebrews 6, so it's it's... So when you say it's impossible to renew to repentance, those who are once enlightened, it doesn't mean it's impossible to bring people back from Judaism once they apostatize. Likewise, I don't think it means that here in Hebrews 12, 17, that Esau didn't have an opportunity for repentance because once you do something like that, you can't repent. I think it's talking about legally he couldn't come back. And besides, he didn't repent from his heart. He was sorry he let it go, but that sorrow is not the same thing as repentance from your heart. He was crying, but were those cries of sincere repentance or cries of remorse because he lost, cries of worldly sorrow because he lost his his inheritance. Now, the reason why I don't think he repented with a true heart, we read in Genesis 27:41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Does that sound like somebody who's repented? No. The tears that he shed were tears of worldly sorrow, as in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Well, Esau had worldly grief. He didn't have godly repentance. We read about this in Genesis 27.34-38. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he, that's Isaac, replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he, Esau, said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing. Then he, Esau, added, haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, look, I have made him a master of you, have given him all of his relatives as his, given him all of his relatives as his servants, and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you, my son? No, it's too late. Legally, it's over. Esau said to his father, Do you only have one blessing? My father blessed me too, my father. Hoo, hoo, hoo. And Esau wept loudly. Well, too bad. Too late. Down to the deserts of Edom. That's your inheritance. Hebrews twelve eighteen. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Now, what could be touched is referring to the tangible mountain of Mount Sinai. You could touch Mount Sinai. He's going to compare that, of course, to the heavenly city that you can't touch the assembly of the saints, the church, the new Jerusalem. He's getting ready to do that. Now, some people say there's a problem here because actually the mountain could not be touched at the time of the giving of the law. We read in Exodus 19:12, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. Well, the answer is, is they could physically touch it, even though it was a high price, they'd be killed, but you could physically touch it. It's it's possible to be touched, is all that the author of Hebrews is saying, but you can't touch something spiritual like the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the New Covenant Church. And besides, Moses and his companions were allowed to touch Mount Sinai because they walked up on it several times. 
We read in, in Exodus 19:10 through 12 the story about how the people were forbidden to touch the mountain. And the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. You can't touch it. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. But that's not what the author's talking about. He's talking about you can physically touch it in the abstract. And after the giving of the law had passed, you could have touched it. And before the law came, you could have touched it. So you didn't come to something physical that could be touched. You didn't come to a blazing fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. Now, fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, of course, is referring to what Mount Sinai looked at the giving of the law. And just to give you a feel for that, let's look at the Old Testament scriptures referring to fire. Exodus 19:18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Deuteronomy 4:11 and 12, you came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens and enveloped in a dense black cloud. Sounds like a volcano to me. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 26, the Lord spoke these commands in a loud voice to your entire assembly from the fire. Let me skip down here. Verse 23, the mountain was blazing with fire. Verse 24, we have heard his voice from the fire. Verse 25, this great fire will consume us. Verse 26, for who out of all mankind has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and lived? So, what does the fire symbolize at the giving of the law? The terrible penalties of the law. Why? Because fire consumes. Remember, our God is a consuming fire just like fire does. It consumes its fuel. Now, of course, that's a great contrast with the new covenant that the author is going to get ready to describe how wonderful it is in verses 22 through 24. And so, you want the fire of the law? You want the fire of Judaism? You want to apostatize or you want to stay in the new covenant? Your choice. Now, darkness and gloom that the author mentions, you haven't, he says, he says in, in verses 18 of Hebrew 12, you have not come to darkness and gloom. You haven't come to the old covenant. You're in the new covenant now. What darkness and gloom is he referring to? Well, let's look at Exodus 19, 10 through 25. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke. Well, cloud and smoke, that's what caused the darkness and the gloom. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke, verse 18 of Exodus 19, because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. So you got clouds and you got smoke causing darkness. And then one last thing is mentioned is a storm. You have not come to fire, darkness, gloom, and storm. You didn't come to a storm. Was there a storm at the giving of the Old Covenant? Well, yes, Exodus 19, 10 through 25. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning. That's a storm. Thick cloud. That's a storm. Psalm 68, 8. The earth trembled and the skies poured down rain before God, the God of Sinai, referring to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So, what is the author doing here? He's talking about how horrible it was to be under the law because the law kill you. God is a holy God. You want to go back to law without the forgiveness of Jesus, without the blood that Jesus sprinkled on you, uh, sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, washing you clean of your sins. You want to forget that and go back to Mount Sinai? Well, you're going to get torched. You're going to be walking in darkness and gloom, and you're going to be surrounded by a storm, and you're going to be real, real sorry. That's where he's going with this. We go to verse 19 in Hebrews 12. You have not come to, Hebrews 12, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Again, referring to what happened at Mount Sinai. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them. 
The blast of a trumpet at the giving of the Lord of, of the law is shown here in Exodus 19:16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Exodus 19:19. 19, three verses later, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. It's quite a visual appearance. There's also a lot of auditory stimulus there. Also, at the giving of the law. My speculation is the wind started blowing, and, whee, and it starts blowing louder and louder, and pretty soon it's going to be buzzing just like a loud trumpet blowing. That's my speculation. I don't know, but I suspect that's what it was. People heard all of that, and they beg, hey, I don't want to hear any more from God. Those who heard it beg that not another word be spoken to them. Now, the word could be the Ten Commandments. That's called the, the Ten Words. They didn't want to hear God speaking anymore. Now, the Exodus talks about God speaking. Let me read that real quick. Exodus 21, God spoke all these words. Deuteronomy 5:22, the Lord spoke these commands in a loud voice to the entire assembly from the fire, cloud, and thick darkness. We just read about all that. But now there's interesting, it is interesting to note that in five places in the scripture it says that the law, the or, when the law was orally given, it was, or well, let's just put it this way, when the law was mediated from God to Moses to the people, angels did the mediation doesn't say God directly. Now, this is not in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament and in Jewish tradition. For example, we read in Hebrews 2.2, 2, For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, Acts 7.53, this is Stephen speaking. This is the second instance. You receive the law under the direction of angels. He's speaking to his pharisaical and, Sadduce and Sadducee persecutors. He says, you, you Jews, receive the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it. That's two times. Paul says in Galatians 3.19, Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. So that's the author of Hebrews, Stephen and Paul in the New Testament saying that the law came through angels. Now, I said that the angels were not mentioned in Exodus. I hope I didn't say that it wasn't mentioned in the Old Testament because we do have a mention in Deuteronomy 33.2 of angels Evolved in the event. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. That's all the mountain range where Mount Sinai was. He showed them them from Mount Paran. That was also a little bit north, same mountain range. He showed them them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones, 10,000 angels, with lightning from his right hand for them. So there's angels coming with the law. And that could just mean that the angels accompanied God and God spoke himself and the angels were just with him. They were helping him mediate, if you will. The angels are messengers of God. They take care of God's business for him. Psalms 8, 68, 17, God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary, as he was at Sinai. So that's referring back to Deuteronomy 33, 2. So those five verses to say that angels were involved with the giving of the law. I don't. And some people try to make, say it's a contradiction because it says God spoke, and then it says the, the law was mediated by angels. That's not a contradiction. I mean, I could say I built my house, but actually a carpenter built it. It means that the carpenter is my agent, just like the angels are God's agent. So that means nothing. Josephus, incidentally, records a common first century Jew Jewish belief that angels mediated the law. It could be that the New Testament authors are just quoting the New Testament belief without necessarily believing it themselves, but I don't think so. I think that the angels actually came. They were... A myriad of them, ain't thousands upon thousands, came from him from Mount Paran. You know, they were, they were there. That's how they mediated the law. But at any rate, that's an excursus that doesn't really fit what we're doing here. 
The point is, the point is, is that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was so terrible that those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them. Therefore, if the Old Testament law was so terrible, why would you want to go back to that? Because you might get, you will be condemned for your sins if you go back to it. Hebrews 12, verse 20, For they could not bear what was commanded. The people of Israel couldn't bear what was commanded on Mount Sinai. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. I'd say even animals were considered sinful if they got close to the holiness of God and the holiness of that law. And you want to go back to that? Here's the scripture about animals and touching Mount Sinai. Exodus 19:12 through 13. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows. In other words, the person who touched the mountain is going to be shot. If you touch the person who touched the mountain, guess what? It's implied here. You're going to be killed too. No animal or man will live that touches that mountain. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown says the shooting with arrows was only for animals that touched the mountain, not men. But this is what it sounds like here in Hebrews 12, 20. It says, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. So I'm going to go with that. Pretty holy. The law is pretty holy. And you're not holy enough to bear its punishments. Hebrew Christians, Hebrews 12, verse 21. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. The sight, as the King James NIV says, the sight of it was so terrifying. The appearance is a little bit misleading. It means the sight of all of the giving of the law was so terrifying. Moses said, I am terrified. Where did he say that? Well, you know, Moses had the privilege of talking to God face to face. And if he was terrified, I fortiori, how much more should the average person be afraid of the law and its holiness? Where did Moses say that? Well, it's actually not recorded in the Old Testament that he did say it. He could have got it from divine revelation. The author of Hebrews could have said, well, I'm being inspired, and I know that Moses said that, or it could be from Jewish tradition. Moses says, I'm terrified and trembling. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Moses was terrified and trembling. Who wouldn't be seeing all that stuff we just talked about at Mount Sinai? When did Moses say, I'm terrified and trembling? Here's a speculation in Exodus 19:19. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. That might have been what he was saying. God, I am terrified and trembling. Help! Hebrews 12, verse 22, instead, the author continues, you, you Hebrew Christians, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. Notice the myriads of angels, there was myriads of angels coming to give the Old Testament law, and now in the New Covenant, the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, there are also myriads of angels, but it's a lot more pleasant environment now. These myriads of angels aren't coming to talk about holiness and judgment and storm and gloom and cloud and fire. They're coming in festive gathering. Festive gathering is what people come to when they go to a party, a feast. Good stuff happening now. So he's switching. He's he's warning them, to, the, the Hebrew Christians, not to go back to the old Israel. And now he's saying to give them a... That was the stick. Now he's talking about the carrot. Look how nice it is here in the heavenly Jerusalem. You need to stay. So instead means instead of going to a mountain that may be touched, instead you've come to Mount Zion, which of course cannot be touched because it's not a literal Mount Zion. And by the way, this seems to me that would be problematic for a literalist, dispensationalist, hermeneutic that says you always got to take it literally. Well, this Mount Zion is not literally. They don't say always. They say 99.9999% of the time. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Mount Zion. Zion is a Symbol of the church, and this is a classic verse right here that proves that, because you have come to it, and you Christians have come to it when you got saved and came into the church. 
And you notice that the heavenly Jerusalem is also Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, in opposition with Mount Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is the city of the living God, which is Mount Zion. So the heavenly Jerusalem is a church. The church on earth. Now here's some options as to this Mount Zion. It could be the church on earth in the new covenant age, which I just mentioned. Gill affirms that. Clark affirms that. And notice the tense here. You have come. That means you, when you got saved in the past, you have come. The heavenly state is in the future, so that probably not talking about Mount Zion in heaven. In the future, when you die, or in the future, in a millennial, so-called future millennial kingdom, it's talking about the church, church on earth. Now, it could refer not to the church on earth, but it could be Mount Zion, the heavenly state of Christians who have died now at the current, in, the, in the 60s AD, and they're in heaven. The problem with that is, is you have come to that. So how can living Christians come to a church of departed saints? I don't see how that's possible, so I don't think that's a good option. In fact, Adam Clark agrees with me, and he says the description in, the, in these verses does not refer to a heavenly state, for the terrible nature of the Mosaic dispensation is never opposed to heaven or life eternal, but to the economy of the New Testament, in other words, the earthly church in the New Testament age. Now, a third option what the Mount Zion could be is the earthly state of Christians in the final state. You know, when you talk about the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven in the book of Revelation, almost everybody wants to say, oh, that's the new, that's the, what they say is the new heavens and the new earth, the final state that's after the church today. Well, that can't be because it says you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem that's in heaven that comes down out of heaven. It's already happened. It's not referring to the end of time in the book of Revelation. It's not referring to the final state. It's referring to the church now. So we can easily say that we are in Mount Zion. Spiritually speaking, we're in the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here's some other scriptures about the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 11:10. For he was looking forward to the city, that's Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 11:16. But they now desire a better place, these heroes of faith a, faith, a heavenly one, a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a heavenly city. Mm, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 13:14. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Now there, the heavenly city is not, well, the one to come was in the time. Now here, the heavenly Jerusalem is referred to as something in the future, and in which case it would have to be the kingdom of God in heaven, not just on earth. So let me amend my statement that I just made. The heavenly Jerusalem is talking about the church here on earth and the church in heaven. And I, it's also referring to the church that's going to last forever and ever and ever as in Revelation. But it's just not one of the other. It's not just starting in the future to the exclusion of the past. It's referring to at the, the church in existence at the time of the Hebrews in the 60s A.D. It's talking about the church in heaven. And it's talking about the church on the redeemed earth that lasts forever and ever and ever. The heavenly Jerusalem. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. That means the Philippians who were still living, their citizenship was in heaven. They were in the heavenly city. Revelation 21.1, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Of course, that's referring to the covenant, the new covenant Christians. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so the New Jerusalem... The heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, is referring to the new covenant, whether it means the people who are in the new covenant still living, whether they're in heaven or whether they're in the past, the present, or the future. It's the new covenant. The new covenant church, as Clark says. 
This is similar to the analogy that Paul used when he was writing to the Galatians. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 26. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children her to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. Jerusalem above, where is heaven? Above, heavenly Jerusalem. We could paraphrase that, but the heavenly Jerusalem is free. Why? Because she is our mother. She is the church. She is where we find forgiveness from the law. Now, in verse 22, in chapter 12, the author says, We, you Hebrew Christians, have come to myriads of angels and festive gatherings. Let's get a peek at that in Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number, this is angels, the number of the angels was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. So, as I said earlier, the message spoken through angels at Mount Sinai, there was thousands of them too. But hey, in the New Testament, around the throne, there's also, in the New Covenant, there's thousands of angels. And the idea here is to show that the New Covenant is no way inferior to the Old Covenant. If the Old Covenant had angels, by golly, the New Covenant did too. As Steve Atkinson says, in fact, there are more myriads at the heavenly Mount Zion than there were at Mount Sinai. I didn't actually compare the the language there, but I take him at his word that there are more angels in heaven at the throne room of God than they were at Mount Sinai. And the throne room of God, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free, which is free from the law and in its condemnation, there's more angels there, and they're in festive gathering than they are at Mount Sinai when there was gloom, fire, smoke, and storm. Hebrews 12:23. You Hebrew Christians have come to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. All right, when the author says that the Hebrew Christians have come to, he's referring, when, when he says in verse 23, to the assembly, he's referring, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, but you rather have come to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven. Now, what's the assembly of the firstborn? The NIV has the church, because the Greek word there is ecclesia, to the church of the firstborn. Now, some people as speculated as to what the assembly of the firstborn is, is it the assembly of angels? The NIV study Bible denies that, and I think for good reason, to the assembly of Jesus, because Jesus is sometimes called the firstborn in other scriptures, but the problem here is the firstborn is plural, so as to the assembly of the firstborns. So here it means Christians, Christians who are heirs. This shows the privileges, heirs, that we are heirs together with Christ, because Christ is the firstborn he inherits. We are the firstborn we inherit. A firstborn had the right of double, of uh, primogeniture, the double blessing. If there were three kids, the estate was divided into four parts, and the first kid got a double part, two parts, and the other kids got the other two parts. So we are heirs to the assembly of the firstborn. We're heirs of all the kingdom. Christ is made heirs of the whole universe. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him. God the Father has appointed him the Son, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. So everything in the universe, Jesus is heir of it. And, of course, we inherit with him because we are in an assembly of the firstborn, an assembly of heirs with our brother Jesus. Now, 
all of the firstborn, all of the elect whose names have been written in heaven, that phrase written in heaven is used to stand for the elect, Revelation 3, 5. In the same way, the victim will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life. His name is written, Revelation 13, 8, all those who live on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Revelation 17, 8, those who live on the earth or who live on the land, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished. Revelation 20, 12, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the de dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. If your name's written down, you're okay. And your deeds are written down, too. It's just a metaphor. Obviously, it's not literally written down in a book in heaven. That's absurd, but it's, it's a metaphor. Revelation 21:27. nothing profane will ever enter it, enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So being written in the Lamb's book of life means that you are a member of the elect and you're saved. The parallel is the Israelites' names were, were recorded in their census books, and likewise, Christians' names are recorded in the books of heaven. Our names have been written in heaven to God, who is the judge, and you have come to God, who is the judge of all. Now, let's look at some scriptures that talk about judgment, that God judges the whole world. Now, this is something, judgment is something that our modern culture has totally lost sight of, and so is the church, the Christless church, the name it and claim it prosperity people. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Romans 14.10-12, but you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 3. 13 through 15, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survived, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ. Tribunal is a courtroom of Christ. Why do you go to court? To get judged? Of course, now in this case, a judge's judgment is good for us who believe in Jesus. So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. So we can get good things at the tribunal too, but we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't know what the lake of fire is like, but it doesn't sound pleasant. It's what we commonly know as hell. And you're not written in that book of life. That's where you're going to end up. This is according to the word of God. And this is something that I wish the modern-day church would pay a little bit more attention to. We might have more success at getting some converts. 2 Timothy 4, 8, there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. The righteous judge. So there's a double message here. The author of the book of Hebrews is saying, go back to Moses and you will be judged negatively. But stay here with Jesus and you will be judged positively. And last of all, you Hebrew Christians have come to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. That means when you... You've came into the church, into the heavenly Jerusalem, into the city of God. You've come to righteous spirits. Now, that could refer to Old Testament believers like Abel and Noah. It could include New Testament believers who died before the book of Hebrews was written in the 60s. 
why are they called righteous spirits? It's probably because they are spirits that in heaven waiting for their resurrection at the last day. They're called righteous because of their faith. Abraham believed God was credited to him for righteousness. Likewise, these spirits were righteous too because they had faith. That's what you have, Hebrew Christians, as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to Judaism. Verse 24, you have also come to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. A mediator is a go-between. He's a go-between between God and believers. He can take our prayers up to God, and he can, and he can uh, take God's punishment away from us so that, we can, so that God can approach us without destroying us. Here's some other verses saying that Christ is a mediator, Hebrews 8, 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. So Jesus is our mediator, and he's a mediator of a new covenant. Moses' covenant, of course, was the old covenant as the book of Hebrews says clearly. Here's some scriptures showing that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 7.22. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Better means new. Hebrews 8.6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Hebrews 8.8. But finding fault with his people, he said, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's talking about the new covenant with the church. House of Israel and house of Judah are used metaphorically there. Hebrews 8.13. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old. Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So you see the idea of new covenant is everywhere in the scriptures. Everywhere in Hebrews, actually. And it's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11, I believe it is. New covenant. It talks about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, instituting a new covenant. Also, in verse 24, you Christians have come to the sprinkled blood. This is to remind the readers that Jesus' blood is superior to that of bulls and goats. The sprinkled blood, he's probably alluding to the blood of the Passover. There's some options here. Maybe he's alluding to the blood of the Passover, as Gill and Clark suggest. During the Passover ceremony, the celebrants sprinkled blood on the lentils and side posts of their doors with a bunch of hyssop to avoid the angel of death so the angel of death wouldn't kill them. Or it could refer to the blood of the covenant. This was when Moses sprinkled blood on the people or the front rows of the people assembled and then he sprinkled blood on the book itself. This is in Exodus 24 and 8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you concerning these words. So it could be the sprinkling on the blood, of the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant on the people in the book, or it could be sprinkling on the doorpost and the lentils. But whatever the Old Testament allusion is to, the author of Hebrews is talking about the New Testament allusion, which is Jesus' sprinkled blood, which is superior to that of bulls and goats. He sprinkles a mercy seat in the heavenly holy of holies, and the heavenly tabernacle goes in there and says, "Hey, in the mercy seat, well, the place of judgment, the place of atonement is now a mercy seat because people find mercy through the blood that's on that." on that altar. Now in verse 24, the author says sprinkled blood, and I'm sure that's referring to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Now, the blood of Abel is a little bit ambiguous. It could be Abel's, his own blood that was spilled when he was murdered by Cain, the blood of Abel, or it could be the blood of Abel's animal sacrifice to God, as Adam Clark says. I'm going to take the position that it's the blood of Abel's animal sacrifices. And I'll tell you why. The blood of Abel's animal sacrifices 
fits the theme of Jesus being better than animal sacrifices pretty doggone well. Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees with me. He says, quote, the, this comparison between two things of the same kind, namely Christ's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice, is more natural than between two things different in kind and in results, namely Christ, Christ's sacrifice and Abel's own blood, which was not a sacrifice at all. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown quotes the Abel commentator Alford saying the same thing. So I've got good authority here. He's talking about Abel's blood sacrifices. Now, if you do assume that I'm wrong about that and that it's talking about how Jesus' sprinkled blood is better than Abel's blood that was spilled on the ground when he was murdered, how would Jesus' blood be better than Abel's murdered blood? Well, you could say this. Abel's blood called for justice and retribution, Genesis 4.10. Then he, God, said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. But Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness and reconciliation, as John Gill says. Let's talk about how Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness and reconciliation. Hebrews 9.12, He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, how? Through the blood of Jesus. Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. There's peace, there's reconciliation, eternal redemption. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now we have cleanliness, purity, peace, eternal redemption, boldness to go see God. All kinds of good stuff come from the blood of Jesus, but on the other hand, Abel's blood is sitting there crying out for vengeance, and so Jesus' blood is better. Well, you can take that view, but I think it's easier to say that the blood of Abel is referring to the blood of Abel's sacrifices, as Jameson, Voss, and Brown and Alford say. We go to Hebrews 12, verse 25. Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. That's God. To reject God under the old covenant was bad enough. It's even worse to reject him under the new covenant. The one who speaks, God speaks. Notice it's present tense. He is now in the process of speaking. It shows that God is still speaking in the first century, just like he was speaking in Moses' time. In the first century he speaks, Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God is still speaking to us by Jesus, to Jesus in these last days, which is the New Covenant era, most probably. For if they did not escape when they rejected him, when did the Israelites reject God? Probably or possibly when the Israelites left Sinai and refused to enter the Promised Land. That's probably good, good places in it to show where they rejected God. And then, of course, God warned them on earth. That was on Mount Sinai with all that horrible holy law that was scaring them to death. God warned them. So even less will we, if we turn away, even less shall we escape if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Jesus gives Christians a better revelation from heaven. Therefore, there's greater danger, as the NIV Study Bible says. Hebrews 2, verses 2 through 3. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, that's under the old covenant, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation under the new covenant? Now, again, that doesn't mean Christians would lose their salvation if they neglected their salvation. How will we escape? That means we won't escape the fires of hell. No, it means they won't escape the fires of Jerusalem when the Romans burn it down in AD 70. Now, this verse should give pause to Calvinists who think they can take it easy because their place is reserved in heaven. Well, these Hebrew Christians had a place reserved in heaven, too. But look at the hell they went through when their city was burnt down. 
or they would have if they hadn't escaped to Pella, as Jesus warned them to, if they had gone back to Judaism and they got and suffered that horrible disaster. Just because you're eternally secure doesn't mean that God can't whip the fire out of your rear end if you decide to do something really sinful and stupid. Now, you know, all this should bring pause to, who, to all those who say the New Testament is all mercy and the Old Testament is all judgment. No, there's judgment in the New Testament. And here we have judgment here in the New Testament. Verse 26, Hebrews 12, the author continues, His, God's voice, shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now when he says, when the author says that God's voice shook the earth at that time, he's talking about at Mount Sinai when the law was given. Remember, his voice was shaking and scared everybody to death. And remember, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke and fire. Judges 5.5, 5, the mountains melted before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord. So metaphorically, the mountains were melting because they were shaking and splitting. It was probably earthquakes. I'm not sure. Mountains melted. It sounds like earthquakes. Psalm 68, 7-8 says the earth trembled. The skies poured down rain before God, the God of Sinai. And we've already read about the smoke, the fire, the gloom, and the doom, and the rain, and the storms, and all that stuff that happened in Mount Sinai. So God shook the earth. When that happened, literally and physically, as well as metaphorically, as he's shaking up the order of things. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, as at Mount Sinai, but also heaven. Well, he's going to shake the earth when he destroys Jerusalem. He's literally and physically going to destroy Israel in AD 70. I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. The heaven and the earth, David Chilton, the theologian, says that heaven and the earth refers to the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, the rabbinic kingdom, I call it, the apostate kingdom of the Jews, God's getting ready to shake it, going to knock it down. This idea of earthquakes or shaking the earth like an earthquake, this is typical decreation rhetoric, which always refers to regime change in the scriptures. And in this case, it was the downfall of old Israel, rabbinic Jerusalem, which was about to be replaced by something that which could not be shaken, which is new Israel, the church. Now, the shaking was referring to the ruling powers of heretical Judaism, as I've just said, and to back me up a little bit, as Steve Atkinson also says it, David Chilton, the Orthodox Preterist theologian, also says it, Adam Clark, the 19th century commentator, also says it. Here's a quote from Clark. This is probably the shaking, quote, probably referring to the approaching destruction of Jerusalem and the total abolition of the political and ecclesiastical constitution of the Jews, the one being signified by the earth, the other by heaven. For the Jewish state and worship are frequently thus termed in the prophetic writings. And this seems to be the apostles' meeting, as he evidently refers to Haggai 2.6, where this event is predicted. Haggai 2.6 and 7 says this, For the Lord of hosts says this, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. Now, if Clark is right about the, about Haggai here. Haggai is talking about the shaking of the old Israel, knocking it down, and then after that happens, then all the nations are going to come in, which really fits right well with the book of Revelation, a preterist view, orthodox preterist view of the book of Revelation. All the nations coming in when the old is flushed and burnt up with fire. Now there's some other options as that are different than AD 70 as as the reference to what the shaking was all about. John Gill mentions the nations who were shaken at the appearing of the Messiah when Jesus was born. I don't think any nations were shaken when Jesus was born. I think most of the nations didn't even know about it. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this is a, the shaking is a conflation of the first coming and the second coming. He manages to skip 8070 and mentions the first coming and the second coming. It's not talking about the second coming. 
It's talking about what the, Jew, the Hebrew Christians would, could identify with, that destruction of Jerusalem, which was coming in just a few years, as Adam Clark so aptly puts it. We go down to Hebrews 12:27. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things. In other words, the Old Testament kingdom was created by man, so that what is not shaken might remain. What is not shaken is the church. Now, the NIV study Bible talks about once more the removal of what can be shaken is talking about great end time upheavals associated with the second coming of Christ. I don't think the context favors that at all. Why would the author over and over draw a contrast between the old and new covenant and then all of a sudden here in the middle of all that contrast the old covenant with the end of the world? I don't think he would do that. He's talking about the removal of the old covenant so that the new covenant church could be established. That which is not shaken might remain. The church might be established in the world. Now, Opposed to the NIV Study Bible, which apparently has been overly influenced by futurism, John Gill and Adam Clark, who lived in a happier theological time, say that this is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 87. They, that's their opinion. They say this is what it refers to. And I agree with them. That which is shaken will remain. If we drop down to the next verse 28, we read, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So it's clear, clearly talking about the kingdom of God there. And it might remain, so that means the new covenant is permanent all the way to eternity. And that's why I say when you see the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, don't just say it's in the future. Say it's when Jesus came from first advent till time immemorial, or not immemorial, but time eternal, time never ending, in heaven and on earth, everywhere where God rules. We go to verse 28, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and all. Therefore, since we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, well, that's a pretty good deal, so let's respond and, and show God some acceptable service in that kingdom. The kingdom, of course, is the church. It's not the consummated kingdom at the end of the world. It's talking about a church. We got it now. We're in the church now. Acceptable service, that phrase reminds us, of course, of Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, Paul says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And you should do this with reverence and awe. We should revere God. We should be in awe of God. Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him. Have reverence for him. Have all for him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Psalms 2.11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. I mean, you think about it. I mean, even though I've been a Christian a long time, sometimes I think about God and how big he is. I look at all these stars, you know, these star photographs. And I think, oh, man, it makes you feel a little bit afraid, <laughs> even though I know he loves me. But he's pretty awesome. Pretty, he's just about the sheer immensity of God. You, you, you need to reverence that, and you need to stand in all of that. Hebrews 12:29. For, in other words, since we've got a kingdom that can't be shaken, and we need to go to God with our acceptable service with reverence and all. Why? For, because our God is a consuming fire. In other words, if you want to go out here and stay in legalistic, apostate, rabbinic Judaism, instead of going to the kingdom that can't be shaken, where you can serve God with acceptable service with reverence and all, you want to go back to that legalistic kingdom, you need to remember something. Your God is a consuming fire. He's going to burn you up. The author is quoting here from Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Then I've known and Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say this is the verse that's being quoted here. Let's look at some verses that show that God is a consuming fire. You think about fire. If by its nature, it consumes its fuel just by 
it can't work otherwise. The only exception, I guess, was around Mount Midian. Remember when Moses saw the burning bush and it wasn't consumed? Exodus twenty four seventeen. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Deuteronomy 9, 3. Know, therefore, today that it, is, that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you. Now it's talking about consuming God's enemies. Hebrews 2 and 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fear of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 31 is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, folks, this modern idea of why, oh, you know, God was so bad. He, he, he committed genocide. He went into the Old Testament Canaan land and wiped out all those people. Oh, my gosh. Every now and then he did to all the women and children. Listen, it is a terrifying thing to haul, fall in the hands of the living God. We do not realize the horror, horrible nature of what we have done when we've rebelled against God. And then when we further rebel and offer our children up for sacrifices and completely pervert and profane the image of God in human beings, you're going to get wiped out, folks. And you can start calling God a genocidalist and you can start blaspheming God all you want. But you're going to pay for that one day. And it was perfectly just for God to destroy Jerusalem for what they had done. They killed Jesus. They killed the Son of God. And, buddy, there's going to be some payment. There is going to be some justice going down for all the sins. I'm especially thinking of a certain nation that has a red, white, and blue flag. And I'm not talking about France, although they're going to get theirs too. But this people in this nation, if we keep up the way we're going, there is going to be hell to pay because our God is a consuming fire. Now, he will not consume Christians. Because the wrath of God has been turned away from Christians because of the blood of Christ. Now, there will be temporal punishment for Christians if they decide to backslide. But assuming they're not, God is going to preserve, just like he preserved the Israelites when he judged Egypt by giving them the Exodus. He preserved the children of Noah when he flooded the world by putting them on a boat, and he protected them. But God knows how to judge people and protect his people at the same time, and he'll do the same in the current days. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Hebrews chapter 12. In our next audio, we will turn to Hebrews 13. I'll do the first 13 verses, which I've chosen to entitle some high-powered exhortations, some miscellaneous exhortations, which are very, very serious. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 